and welcome to Innovation Matters. It is the Sustainable Innovation Podcast brought to you by Lux Research. I'm your host, Anthony Schiavo. I'm a senior director here at Lux. And I'm joined by my two colleagues, Mike Coleman and Kartik Sabramian. Um, and we're super excited to announce that the Innovation Matters podcast is renaming itself as the Rational Innovation Podcast in order to depoliticize, <laughs> <laughs> in order to depoliticize the the podcast, which we think will will solve all the problems with it. <laughs> Mike, how's it going? No complaints. Excited for the name change. That's a joke, by the way. <laughs> to, be, to be very clear, that is a joke. We're gonna we're gonna eat our vegetables first, but then we're gonna come back and talk about some rational sustainability at the end of the episode and. Just a little, a little treat for dessert. How, how are you doing, Kartik? Yeah, I'm doing all right. I'm, uh, I mean, this is not a video podcast, unfortunately, but I'm sporting my Liverpool shirt in support of Jurgen Klopp, who is leaving the club after nine <laughs> long years. Again, it it has ties to the Innovation Matters podcast because you know FSG, the owners of Liverpool Fenway Sports Group, are from Boston. They own the Boston Red Sox as well. I didn't know that because I know nothing about football. Yeah, so a bit disappointed, but uh, quite excited for the name change. <laughs> <laughs> well, there has been a lot of innovation news happening. And one of the th- first things we want to start with was a pretty interesting story. Coca-Cola has announced that it is forming a kind of a venture accelerator partnership with, with Deep Science Ventures to really focus on water and water, really all things water, it seems like, but especially water saving technologies, potentially some water recycling technologies, a pretty wide range of different approaches to address water scarcity. I think what's so interesting about this, first of all, is that it kind of seems a little bit late in the sense that Coca-Cola and these companies have been, you know, especially I think like Nestle, right, gets a ton of flag for being this like evil water consuming corporation. Of course, like stuff like bottled water doesn't really compare to agriculture, right? So there's a lot of public misperception about the actual sort of nature of water consumption. But it's undeniably becoming a more and more fraught political issue, a fraught technology issue. So it's kind of surprising to see like, oh, wow, it's it took until 2024 to get this kind of action from a major group like Coca-Cola. Of course, they've been doing a lot of water saving stuff for years. But I think what's most surprising is that we haven't seen other industrial companies jump in. You know, I'm thinking a lot of the semiconductor industry where there's a huge amount of water related challenges there. I'm thinking of uh, mining industries, right? Obviously, it's a a significant cost, um, particularly water remediation. But I think there's a growing consensus that you need to actually tackle that type of of issue in order to be a continuing operation that has a license to operate. So it's something I expect to see more of going forward. But Mike, I'll I'll, I'll kick it to you first. What did you think of this? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't surprising to me either. I think one of the things that we've been seeing just in our our work at Lux in general, right, is more interest in sustainability issues beyond carbon and, and emissions. A lot of the, you know, biodiversity and land use and and so on are all a part of that. But water, I, I think, has really been at the head of the list of of other sustainability issues where companies have maybe had a little bit of tunnel vision or at least been been clearly most heavily focused on climate and reducing carbon emissions or, you know, where relevant looking at plastic waste. Companies in the plastics industry and companies in, in, in food and beverage and other industries that use a lot of a lot of packaging materials. That's been a big issue also. But we're starting to see, I think, a lot of companies take a broader look at uh, at sustainability with with water being being a really big part of that. 
And it is something that affects a lot of industries, food and beverage and beverage, I guess, in particular, since it's, you know, mostly water it affects that, that, that is one of the most, uh, the most salient ones, you know, in, in, it's certainly an issue for the, the energy industry in, in general, pulp and paper. There's, there's a lot of segments that, that, that have these challenges around it. And I do think you're right. We'll start to see more of these more of these types of consortia and initiatives uh, that are focused on this issue in particular. Yeah, for me, it's quite interesting thinking about this because, you know, Coca-Cola has been there for quite a long time. And I'm sure they've optimized their processes to use as little water as possible, even though making a bottle of Coca-Cola would require a lot of water. Um, so for me, the question really is, where are the savings going to come from? I'm not sure if forming this venture or not is going to help discover those technologies that's going to really lead to water savings or, or much more than what they can already achieve, the technologies at hand. I would just look at this and go, maybe Coca-Cola has realized that, you know, water is going to be a big problem when it comes to branding and marketing. And, you know, this is one way to address that problem. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts as well, Anthony and Mike, on whether tangible gains can be made with newer technologies when it comes to water savings or process optimization. Yeah, I mean, I do think there's a lot of room to run in improvements here. You know, more companies moving to to trying to do zero liquid discharge type approaches, being able to treat treat water so that you uh, can reuse it in at least in, in certain certain ways for cooling and things like that, right? Rather than um, than than discharging it. And there's a lot of innovations we've we've looked into for that. I think there's still, you know, in in large part because this area has probably not gotten as much focus as, as energy and climate and 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 plastic waste. Uh, there's still uh, quite a bit of room for innovation, and I think, you know, these kind of consortia or or, or venturing programs are, are not going to solve all the problems, but it, it is a really important and useful sort of tool in the kit because these are issues that. As I think Coca-Cola calls out in this, in this, uh, in their in their announcement, affect the industry pretty broadly. So there's a lot of opportunity for companies to, you know, to build up these these sort of ecosystems where there's a lot of room for for collaboration. And and you know, it's an issue that requires companies to to kind of think about the in in a lot of the same ways that like energy and emissions does to kind of think about the problem more holistically. Require it's going to require a lot of partnerships looking not just at water treatment technologies, but how that interacts with the, you know, with the, some of the process technology and, and, you know, as Anthony pointed out, really reducing your impact, I think in particular is going to require working across the value chain because for somebody like Coca-Cola, a lot, a lot of their, their, you know, a lot of water goes into the beverages, more is used in the manufacturing and bottling and, and so on processes, washing and, and all of that, but uh, I think probably for a lot of, of products, the the biggest water impacts are upstream and the agriculture that that goes into making the sugar or whatever other ingredients may be going into a lot of these products. I think that's right, and I think um, there is a lot of opportunity there, especially in the context of new ways to really generate water, right? And like one of the biggest challenges is we have these water streams where you're pulling from the groundwater, you're putting in the fields, ultimately it ends up as runoff or evaporation, and you're ultimately depleting um, this reservoir 
faster than you can you can do it and then you can refill it right then it gets refilled naturally and so you have to start looking at okay what are these sources that we can produce water from whether that's you know industrial waste runoff any kind of i mean even i know we've we've looked at it a lot of times with beers and it's never made a lot of sense but even things like moisture harvesting right in relatively arid regions it's one of those things where okay it's never really made sense in the past but the technology is pretty well understood and it's deployed and you know you can basically get these big condensate farmers that are just these giant screens that are designed to have condensation form on them gets collected down and it's like okay like that's been deployed in remote villages and you know areas that have really significant both water scarcity and also huge logistical issues that you can't actually bring water in but like that technology is pretty well understood. It's like, are we going to get to a point where it makes sense to do larger scale or more enhanced scale water harvesting, you know, that's atmospheric, right? Um, and really try to expand the availability of water supply. Probably not in the near term, but maybe at some point. There's just a lot of options out there that haven't really been explored. It's kind of like energy where like a lot of stuff is theoretically on the table, but just does not, it's just not as cheap as like pulling the groundwater up. So it's never really been done in the same way that like natural gas and coal kind of make a lot of clean tech, like sort of obsolete for a long time until we realize like, Hey, actually that stuff's bad and we have to stop doing it. So there is a lot of potential options out there. I know we have other topics also to talk about, but uh, just one thing I'm, I was quite curious and, and what interests me the most in this is what they're talking about from a water harvesting standpoint, if they're looking at new technologies is how they can cause minimal environment damage while getting water. So, that also plays a big part when we are looking at these things. So I'm, I would very well watch the space to see what kind of innovations they come up with that reduces environmental impact while also, you know, saving water. Yeah, I think I guess the last thing to say about water is that it, that it, you know, one, it's very sort of geographic, and you know, there's areas where it's it's really not such an issue to withdraw a lot of water because there is a good sort of natural renewable water resource from you know the water cycle that we all learned about and in elementary school and and you don't have to necessarily draw from groundwater if there's a lot of you know that you're on a good river or or, uh, or whatnot but also you know there are a lot of kind of non-technology solutions things related to land use and how um you know how the layout of of, of cities and other built spaces are done to help make sure water is captured and, and help you know ensure that groundwater is being regenerated more more rapidly so i think there's a lot of kind of interesting stuff to to look at, which may or may not be sort of venture venture type ideas, but there are things I think to look at uh, beyond just uh, the kind of technology like fancy separations or advanced water capture, or atmospheric water capture or whatnot. It's not just the water that's drying up. It is also money for people doing 3D printing. And that's what we call a transition here in the podcasting business. <laughs> because we got, we got some news this week. The company Arivo is out of business. Their assets are being sold off. Arivo, if you're not familiar, was a 3D printing startup. I think they raised around $70 million. So decent money, but maybe not the biggest 3D printing startup. There's a couple that have pushed into the hundreds of millions of dollars range. And they were somewhat unique in that they were a composite 3D printing player. They developed this technology that, you know, it started really, I think, as I recall, with the materials, this carbon fiber composite. And then they needed and ended up needing to develop a actual printer to produce that. Um, and they could do really complex shapes. They were getting more and more involved in 3D printing of bikes, 
But, you know, we've seen this broader downturn in the 3D printing space, as I alluded to. You've got a lot of companies that are really struggling to generate any kind of return um, and to also to turn a profit. And especially, you know, the, the companies who kind of aggressively scaled up. I'm thinking of the uh, the desktop metals of the world, of course. But even more broadly, it seems like the the 3D printing malaise has spread not just to these really big overfinanced players, but also to the more specialized companies as well. So, Mike, I'm curious, what did you think about this? What was your reaction? I mean, to me, it's a little surprising because I always imagined them as being one of the better players and also I have some thoughts about their business model that are maybe incorrect based on evidence, but I'm curious as to what you thought. Yeah, I mean I think the 3D printing is getting into this this phase, which we've been we've been observing and commenting on for for a number of years at Lux, right? Where it, it is more it is becoming a more mature and more established technology. It's um you know, less about the the buzz and the future potential and more about what can you actually concretely do with it right now. And I think you can do a lot with it right now. There are a lot of things that, that people are doing and producing specialized parts, I think particularly from the manufacturing standpoint and producing things like molds and tooling uh, rather than necessarily 3D printing and products. So there's there's certainly some of that that's happening as as well. You know, there there were a lot of these. Uh, it, it's natural that there's going to be industry consolidation. That some of these players are, are not going to make it. I, I would have probably also expected Revo to do to do better because they they did have an approach that I think was kind of unique and and, and differentiated. Uh, I mean, one of the kind of things that you you expect to happen as as an industry matures and consolidates, so it's just, I think the kind of the cycle we're going to be going through with, with 3d printing here is a lot of the small, you know, a lot of kind of undifferentiated companies are going to either be, be rolled up or, or, or end up going out of business. Revo I think was more differentiated, but they just never, I think landed on a market that had a really clear, strong uh, demand for the, for, for their technology and the value proposition that they had. Right. And they were a composite 3d printing company. Right. So it's a, higher performance, higher cost type of materials. And there's, there's always a risk with that, that you don't land on somebody who's, who has a, has a need that makes them willing to pay for that, that kind of premium. So my grand theory of 3D printing was that the 3D printing companies had over-indexed into uh, printer production, Yep. which I think is true. I still think that is true, that they, they were leaning too heavily on that and printer sales. And that the reality was that it's actually quite challenging to adopt 3D printers especially for any sort of manufactured part at scale, uh, because there's a lack of expertise. It's just a very high skill undertaking to actually get something to print successfully and reliably, repeatably across multiple printers, across multiple locations. When you look at groups like Carbon or Desktop Metal or even the big 3D printing companies, you know, your Stratasys is of the world. The the scalability of those businesses based on selling 3D printers was always really uh, challenging. The cost reductions that happened in 3D printing were generally not enough to get people to buy in on their own 3D printing systems. And so my grand theory was, look, everyone is going to pivot towards making parts. All the 3D printing companies that are successful are going to end up as being 3D printed component companies or part companies. 
but that's what that's what Arivo was doing. Um, and they were doing that. They started doing that in like 2020. Um, they pivoted to basically bicycle, you know, frame manufacture. And they built a production facility, I think, in uh, Vietnam, in Vietnam to to produce these frames. Right. And that was like to me that was like the model so the fact that they've gone out of business is definitely a little bit of a a wrinkle in the theory here yeah i I don't think that the that the theory was necessarily wrong i think it's just uh you know they they may have have chosen the wrong market or or not been been able to to execute on it because i think it's the point is exactly right i mean and this is um, there's a great Clay Christensen paper called Skate to the Money, where he he talks about the, the computing industry, but basically in kind of the early commercial stages of uh, of an industry, it's common for it to need to be really, really vertically integrated for exactly the reasons you were saying, right? It's the equipment is not established and standardized as 3D printers, and it still requires a lot of specialized expertise to be able to use it really effectively and you know hence in the sort of the early days of of the computer industry similarly like ibm and very vertically integrated players were most successful and eventually as as things got more standardized with the personal computer and 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 so on you were able to sort of disaggregate that stack and you know layers like the software from microsoft and the chips from intel Mm. the most you know i think we'll see that happen with 3d printing as well but but we're further from that point i do think you need that 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 level of vertical integration and that ability to leverage the expertise in the actual use of the 3D printing, the 3D printers and the software that goes along with it, right? And really be able to integrate all that to, to make it effective and economical right now. Yeah, for me, I, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, Anthony, because you follow the 3D printing space more than I do, uh, is that where's the demand for 3D printed parts? Like I remember when I used to look at 3d printing during my bachelor's and stuff we used to make these small batman logos and small components using polymers that look super cool not nothing really structural uh i don't see a lot of talk about structural components using 3d printed parts i mean personally speaking i would never 3d print a bike frame because i really don't see if there's a market for that people at least in the netherlands want to ensure their bikes don't get stolen and anything that's shiny and fancy has the greatest probability of getting stolen so you wouldn't want it to be 3D printed and looking cool. So I think it's a little different. The Netherlands is maybe a bit of a unique case in the sense that, you know, bikes are maybe significantly more utilitarian there than they are. Like, you know, my dad is a, a long distance cyclist. And I don't know if you knew this, but there's this, uh, there are these graphene t- uh, tires, graphene bike tires where they put graphene in the rubber. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, oh, no. Uh, this is a direct to plus. Um, they're a European company. They do a bunch of graphene enhanced sport equipment. Um, and they launched those and he, he got those like the moment they launched. That's, he was that's, that's gotta be it was a real, real family tension in the, uh, in the Schiavo family. Well, I, it, was, it was a good <laughs> opportunity for a little primary research. I was like, were they different? He was like, eh, no, not really. And I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> great. Thank you. But the, the point I guess I would say is like, I mean, we do see 3d printing being used right for structural components and for various you know in metals but it's really in applications where it saves a lot of money and like there's basically this small circle of 3d printing applications where it's so much better than the alternative right it's like oh ge is 3d printing engine parts and they've consolidated like 100 parts into like eight printed components and or oh we're printing high strength titanium components 
and we used to have to machine this out and we would throw away 90% of this material and the material costs like $100 a kilogram. <laughs> it's like, so there's this small circle where like 3D printing is insanely more valuable than like the next best thing, right? And like that's in a handful of you know, aerospace applications, a handful of medical applications, right? And then the whole thing has been, okay, well, how do we push 3D printing outside that circle? And, you know, it's not been very successful. I mean, there's been some stuff like dental where, you know, it is, it makes sense. And again, there's like a business model that works and supports it. It's very vertically integrated, like you said, Mike. My, my daughter is using Invisalign right now. Yep, that's 3D printed. Um, but it's not something that... I, it, it's it's to me it's only really a single step outside of that circle of like the most high value uh components so i mean i don't know like i have there's 3d printed cufflinks lux research logo branded cufflinks they think they're still on shapeways yeah, you can yeah they're on shapeways if you want a pair i have a pair yeah it's it's just hard to say exactly what what is going to drive that and the cost reduction that has come primarily from material savings and design changes I think has mostly been exhausted, right? And now the cost savings are going to have to come from like logistics and supply chain. Like, oh, it's cheaper just to ask to, to print 10,000 things than it is to like spin up a mold for that. And it's challenging because like 3D printing also makes the molding cheaper, right? Um, so I don't know if we're going to be able to get there um, or if we do get there, it's going to be sort of the next wave of, of 3D printers, 3D printing companies that really focus on the supply chain elements as opposed to like the materials and the printer technologies. Okay, we've talked about the boring stuff. We've talked about the real actual stuff. Let's 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 talk about something that made me really upset. <laughs> made me prompted a series of, of of angry texts to Mike when when I saw this article. There's this article that was published in Bloomberg. The title of the article is How to Fix ESG by Changing Its Name. The moniker has become so politicized that it prevents clear-headed thinking, says a London business school professor. Uh, Alex Edmonds. Alex, come on the pod, first of all. If you're listening, come on the pod. Um, I promise I'll be nicer. Defend yourself, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you can come on and defend yourself. He proposes the name Rational Sustainability. Quote, by naming it rational sustainability, this will guard against companies being caught up in irrational sustainability bubbles, and it will depoliticize sustainability because, you know, sustainability, it's actually good for everyone. So it's really not political. It's just long-term thinking. It's just long-term thinking. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not political. It's been politicized, um, and it's possible to, to depoliticize it. Um, because rational sustainability is about value creation, not politics. I'm sorry. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> the, the, the idea that you can depoliticize ESG or like, first of all, it, it is worth noting that he's talking specifically about ESG investing and ESG finance here, right? He's a professor of finance. And he's coming at it from that angle. So on a certain level is a little bit more like, oh, the specific act of ESG investing is like, that could that should be depoliticized. That's a little bit more, I think, where he's coming from, which is yeah. still wrong and not very well reasoned, but a little bit more understandable. 
sustainability, it's like this enormous transfer of wealth. It's this enormous creation of, of value. It's this enormous like destruction of value of existing wealth. Like if you own oil assets, you know, and everyone switches to, to green electricity, that becomes worthless. This is a deeply political issue. This is just like, <laughs> like the act of becoming sustainable is this enormous political transformation, you know, huge structural sort of upheaval in the political economy. And so like, I'm sorry, but like naturally anything downstream of that, like ESG investing is going to be political and politicized. And even if it was somehow possible to depoliticize it, I don't think that just naming it rational sustainability is going to do it. (gasps) Oh my God. Um, Yeah. And this guy got written up in Bloomberg. So it really makes me question what I'm doing in my life, man. <laughs> I have, I have, I have faith you'll get written up in Bloomberg someday, Anthony. So, I mean, there's a lot that's, I mean, to to credit where due, there's a lot that's sort of right and useful in this, right? The the sort of concept of ESG has it, it has been politicized, and it's also just not been very effective, right? As we've talked about on here. As practiced, uh, ESG investing has not been very effective at at generating. Um, uh, it was a very effective at, for a while at generating inflows to ESG funds, uh, but it was not, I think, very effective at actually advancing sustainability or you know societal or or maybe even governance goals. Um, and I think you know a lot of the the ideas in here, like the name rational sustainability, I find kind of goofy. Um, cause it's not like, oh, we were just, oh, that was the problem. We were being irrational. Uh, whoops. Um, you know, the, the specific suggests like, okay, you try to make sure these activities are tried to tied to specific values. And, you know, the, the, some of those specific suggestions are, are, you know, are basically sensible, but I think the, to me, the fundamental problem with, um, you know, so ESG is a term we need to get away from and companies do need, I think, in specifically to, to actually think about ESG differently than than they have been investors and companies. I think the problem is just that ESG as a category doesn't really make sense. There's these three things, right? It's environmental, it's social, so, you know, diversity and community relations and, and a lot of those things that get, get wrapped up into their gender equity, you know, things, things like that. Um, and that's also, you know, what where where I think also by the by a lot of the controversy comes in from from certain political quarters, uh, and governance, right, which is just sort of good corporate governance best practices. And I think when when all of those things were, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, when those things were all kind of relatively marginal issues within the sort of investor and court, like not a lot of people were focusing on them it probably made sense to kind of lump them together just to, to try to get to a little more critical mass. But those are other, all much more developed today. And I think they're all much, much more of a focus and, and they're all important enough issues in their own right. And, and despite some of the, some of the connections you can, you can draw generally distinct enough issues that you really do need to think about them separately. So I think, you know, what's smart, executives and 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 also what smart investors should be doing is is looking at sustainability and these climate and waste and so on issues that we've been that we've been talking a lot about 
that's its own thing. You need to have you know somebody who's is focused on on addressing those issues specifically and, and developing plans around them and 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 developing a good competency in assessing them and the impact they're likely to have on your investments if you're on the you know if you're on the finance side. Diversity, equity, inclusion, those other all those other social issues. That's that's something that also you know deserves its own place and in, in corporate governance and and so on. So I think you really just have to disaggregate these and, and approach each of them in a uh, in in you know in its own sort of more focused way. There are so many ways in which you could improve ESG. Like one of the nice things about ESG is so terrible that offering improvements is like a slam dunk, right? Um, it's extremely easy to do. And this guy has completely failed to, to, to do any of them or to really offer any of any meaningful improvements in his piece, which is, and his, he wrote this long paper, which by the way, he cites himself four times in like the first page. Oh, that's, that's standard operating procedure for an no, academic. You got to cite all your previous papers. I've, oh believe, my me, God. believe me, I've been there. You got to cite all your previous papers. <laughs> this is why People I know what an you've academic, been doing. Man. He's been cooking. He has been cooking, dog. Um, <laughs> we may have to do a little book club on this guy's book. But um, you know, beyond the fact that you you mentioned, you know, disaggregating the ESG, which I, I think makes a lot of sense, we just need much better data. Like if you look at credit ratings, right? Um, they're like ninety nine percent correlated or ninety nine point nine percent correlated with each other. Like the three big credit rating firms. They almost never disagree. Um, whereas ESG ratings literally don't even statistically correlate with each other from the three ratings agencies. So it's just like at a baseline, if you're, and you know, again, it's kind of hewing more towards ESG finance, right, is the frame here. If you're trying to actually use any of the ESG finance metrics to like make investing decisions, you're already just completely off base. Like you're not standing on firm ground even to begin with, let alone, you know, anything else, right? And so like, it's like, hey, just like standardize the data disclosure, right? That's like an extremely easy thing to call for. Um, and like, <laughs> like make more rational decisions is like not possible even at this point, even if you wanted to make that a central pillar of your, your argument. And, you know, the last thing I guess I would highlight is structurally within companies and within shareholders, you have financial performance, which is everyone is compensated on, every board of directors cares about, all the stockholders care about, all the CEOs are paid in stock. And then you have like SNG, which like if you fail to meet them, you know, maybe there's like a, a bad press release gets put out. <laughs> but if you fail to meet the financial targets, like you lose your job and the company goes out of business. You know what I mean? It's just like, there's no... <laughs> There's no world in which those factors are going to be given any kind of similar weight, right? They're just structurally so unbalanced. There's just no way. It's not, it just can't be a useful framework uh, given that that's the situation. Yeah, for me, what I think is more interesting is the basis of ESG as in where it came from. For me, if I think back and please correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think ESG was just an evolution of CSR, right? Corporate social responsibility. Mm -hmm. So I don't even think the basis for ESG was motivated by sustainability. I really don't think it was. I think it was just another way of spinning corporate social responsibility and how companies can do more for the society and things like that. And sustainability is, of course, a component of that. 
So, I mean, firstly, call, calling it rational sustainability, I mean, I, to think about it, maybe, <laughs> Anthony, you would say, you know, uh, investing in DAC is irrational sustainability. Oh perhaps <laughs> perhaps uh, uh but uh, i'm never gonna live down the dak shit i swear to god <laughs> so uh, i mean I, I wouldn't call it that so i think anything that's motivated by sustainability is going to be rational uh so uh, i don't know even if that name would catch on and, and it's so hard to say rational sustainability was a thing esg uh you know so i think even there i, I think that's two zero there already <laughs> uh to the author who wrote this piece uh but yeah, I think at the end of the day, in terms of investing and financing, I'm sure people know where to invest in and what to invest in and how much to invest in those technologies to help us get more sustainable. Uh, as long as they keep sustainability at the forefront and not try to balance it with growth and, and try to see you know where growth is going to take them. So if they can do that, I think it, it can be easily depoliticized and we don't have to talk about what the motivation is, you know. I think if that's sorted, then the name really doesn't matter. Yeah, and so much of so much of the whole thing is backwards looking, right? Oh, this you shouldn't make irrational decisions. Well, like no, no one ever thinks they're making irrational decisions, right? Like that's how bubbles work. Like <laughs> this is not a. It, it always appears rational at the time. I guess is is the idea, right? And he like points to like these bubbles of you know sustainable investment and. and even in the last couple of years, we've seen a big bubble, you know, in the 2020 to 2021, 2022 timeframe. But there were like real financial policy causes of that. Um, interest rates and stimulus, you know, among other things, right? And there were real incentives for the actors involved. You know, the SPAC sponsors were getting rich, right? I mean, that's a, they were, they were getting rich by, you know, collecting 20% of a, a company's, um, you know, stocks when it, when it went public, right? And like, that's perfectly rational. If you're Bill Ackman or whatever, or any of these other SPAC sponsors, like you were just acting in your own best interests and you were probably fairly successful for a while. And it's not that, oh, like a bunch of irrational actors were, you know, just making silly decisions. It was like, yeah, everyone, everyone was trying to get rich and they thought that it would get them rich quick to do this. Like, and some of them were very successful, right? And the bottom fell out, but that's not like they just got and they just ended up holding the bag, you know, like. Rational, sustainable innovation. Rational innovation matters. <laughs> I tend to think we are rational though. I don't, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> Some of us more than others, I think, is the is the reality here. Well, look, thanks for listening. This has been yet another wonderful episode of Innovation Matters. It's the most rational podcast. There is a rational choice now that you're done listening to this, and that is to go rate the podcast only in the most uh, sort of clear-headed and intellectual way. Give us whatever star rating you think we deserve, but... Actually, please give us five stars. Um, <laughs> that's that's the thing that would help us out. If you want to support the podcast, we'd really appreciate that. Do do that. Do subscribe to the podcast. You can subscribe on Apple. You can subscribe on Spotify. It also helps us out. Thanks all. Innovation Matters is a production of Lux Research, the leading sustainable innovation research and advisory firm. You can follow this podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want more, check out 
www.luxresearchinc.com blog for all of the latest news, opinions, and articles.